0: So as we return to our text that we've been covering, we've been talking a lot lately about the new man in Christ, specifically his character. And we wanted to connect what has been being taught through with what we have just gone through in the book of 2 Peter. Remember in the book of 2 Peter, we find the very word, the very word of Christ under attack. Find his word under attack. And we know that as believers the gospel is going to be attacked in all spheres of life. It should come as no surprise to you that the gospel, the very gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, speaks to all realms of life. So it should come as no surprise to us that in every sphere of life, the authority of Christ will be under attack. The authority of Christ will be called into question. And so what do we have to rely upon? What do we have to resist it? Well, the Scriptures don't just tell us merely to resist the onslaught of godlessness. It's not as if the Bible tells us, hey, don't do those things. When we talk about the character of the Christian and how the believer and the church at large is supposed to conduct itself in this world, we find an extremely useful and necessary instruction in the way of practicing the one another's. I would say it's one of the most significant ways that the Christian can resist the proliferation of godlessness in our own society. And of course, if we are called to not only believe the gospel, but we are called to victory in Christ, we certainly have to act like we are victorious. And a very ordinary way of doing that is practicing these one another's. That's part of what we call the Christian's character. And that is what Paul covers so eloquently and so clearly. So if you're not there, please open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Been have been there the last couple of weeks. We'll continue in our study and it's amazing how all of this fits together. And so as I keep going through this text, just more and more keeps jumping out of the words on the page that I think, wow, this could be really exciting to go through and I think very, very helpful and encouraging to us. Again, we've talked about how much The Christian's life is not inert, it's not passive, it's not just about enduring and persevering. Positively, there are rich instructions as to how we are to conduct ourselves. That is walking in the light, that is walking in victory, that is simply walking as a Christian. So if you're there, Colossians chapter 3, please pay attention as I read the text. I will start in verse 16 and read through verse 17. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. So this continues in our previous chunk of verses. So in verses 12-15, through we were talking about the new man. Specifically, his position and pursuit. Again, where does the new man stand? What is his condition? What is his position? It's a position of grace. We found out at least that much that he is called by God. That he is chosen. He is holy. He is beloved. Then we find his pursuit. His position isn't one where he is simply standing around. He has instructions as to what he is to pursue in life. And so Paul gives us a list in verses 12 all the way down through 15, starting with putting on a heart of compassion and really culminating in thankfulness. But the Christian is to do all of these things that he is commanded to do with a thankful heart. We should exult in what the Lord has called us to do. We should see it as a privilege. We should anticipate those opportunities and even be on the lookout for them. So that is position in pursuit. And so in this text, verses 16-17, through 17, we come to the next two items. I think very important ones. We could call it the new man's passion and purpose. And I think we find both of those things interwoven very clearly through this text. Let's take an initial look. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Well, I would say that is a passion of the Christian. We should love the Word of God. We should delight. In fact, should is neither here nor there. The Christian, by his very nature, delights in the Word of God. The Word of God is the Christian's passion. We read it, we hear it, we internalize it, and as Paul says here, let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you. The Christian's uh, new life is one in which we do nothing, in which we hinder the influence and the presence and authority of the Word of Christ dwelling within us. And we also find in that our very purpose. Each Christian is to be called a man or woman of the Word part of who we are in Christ. But then the Word of Christ richly dwelling within us lends itself to our very purpose. It says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We call that worship, or at least a significant part of our worship. When we think of worship, we typically think of singing. Singing to God with one another. That is the reason we are alive. You want to narrow down the purpose of life to one word. It is worship. We're called to live for God, to honor Him, to ascribe to Him all of the worth that is Him. With all the attributes, with all the characteristics, and as we live for His glory, we are to come to reflect those very characteristics. And that is why we say we know none of these things that Paul commands of us unless we look at God, unless we look at the Lord Jesus first. And yet, none of that is going to happen without the truth of word of Christ. So let's look at this first thing. Let's look at this initial command that Paul gives us. He says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. So we say, well, what is the word of Christ? We we hear the the, the scriptures or divine truth characterized in many ways. Typically we we assign it the term the word of God or or simply the word. Here Paul says the word of Christ. And I think what Paul is doing is he is connecting uh, this to what he has said before. That the riches of all wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. That's where the tre- that's where your treasure lies. In Him and nowhere else. I don't think, let's be very clear on this, I don't think what Paul is saying is that the Word of Christ is only the message that Jesus died and rose again. I would venture to say, and I think this is very important as it pertains to our worship, that the Word of Christ is the entire divine revelation. Is the New Testament the Word of Christ? Answer me. Yes or no? Is the New Testament the Word of Christ? Yes. Second question. Is the Old Testament the Word of Christ? Yes. Very good. The Old and New Testament, the entirety of Scripture is the Word of Christ. And we say, how? Because it all points to Him. Jesus confirmed as much. It all points to Him. So we view Scripture through that lens. Through all that, all who Christ is, all that Christ reveals, all that He provides and accomplishes purely by the grace of God, all of that constitutes the Word of Christ. And yes, absolutely, the centerpiece is the message of Christ died and rose again. But we don't want to isolate that against all that points to it and all that anticipates it. What that means, of course, is that as we grow in the Lord, we see the very Word of God in its entirety. The whole counsel of God, as Paul describes it, come to bear in our lives and to bear fruit richly. In Romans 10.17, Paul says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. See, our life in the Lord begins with the Word of God. And we never isolate it. We consider it in its entirety. With all that it contains for us, all of its revelation, all of its commands, all of it is the word of Christ. And so Paul says, let this word dwell richly within you. So automatically, this puts us on guard against a casual relationship with the word of God, with all of it, because it all still stands. And I think it befits us today to consider, to stop and consider the value and the riches of the word of Christ. For it to dwell richly means that God has given it richly. To have Christ is to have a priceless jewel worth more than all the golden treasures in this world. He who has Christ has all. See, when the word of Christ, friends, dwells within us, it means it comes to dominate the whole of life. We warn continually about compartmentalizing the Christian life, that here is Here is where we do common things. Here is where we do kingdom things. And it doesn't really matter how the word of Christ comes to bear here. But oh, it matters a lot here, right? And yet we see this, that when it dwells richly, it comes to dominate all of life. I think that word is, this word dwell characterizes it pretty well. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Come across this word before. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, Uh, the Apostle John uses this word quite often. He describes those who dwell on the earth. Those who have made this earth their home. To dwell in something points to the fact that you don't only sleep there, you don't only rest there, but that you have a personal attachment and investment into that place. And so in the book of Revelation, when when John refers to people who dwell on the earth. He's not simply saying these are earthlings. These are people who happen to live on the third planet from the sun. He is describing people who have made this world, this passing world, their home. Those who attach themselves to all that is passing away. To all that is putting under being put under Christ's feet. It, is, it speaks of those who are not anticipating the realization of the new heaven and new They are attached to all that is fading. Attached to all that is under judgment. There is nothing that they anticipate in Christ. And so just as the scripture describes, they will come to face the judgment and wrath of God. That is to say, there is no question as to what they call home. There is no question as to where their deepest devotion and commitments lie. There is no question as to what dominates their hearts. And so what dominates our hearts? Very practical question. Especially as we look at life, look at life today, consider the challenges of sin, the continual pursuit of godliness and growing in grace. We have to consider that. Because we want there as believers to be no question as to the priorities of our hearts. We want there to be no question. Again, We want this to be crystal clear as to the place that the Word of Christ has in our lives. We want the Word of Christ to be at home. We want the Word of Christ to have a fixed place in our lives. We want it to dominate all of our lives. And not only as individuals, but as a church. We want the Word of Christ to dominate here. We want His Kingdom and Lordship to be very clear in here. We want His saving grace to be clear in our midst. To not treat it casually, casually, but to treat it as a thing of utmost importance. That's what it means to to dwell richly. Now consider the battle against sin. One way to, one thing that we want to question, especially when we see ourselves fall into sin or others, I mean, in any counseling situation, it's the first question that comes to my mind. When a person falls into grievous error, the first question that comes to mind is simply this. What is this person's relationship to the Word of God? How often are they in it? How often are they studying it? How often are they exposed to truth? Not merely reading the Word of Christ, but being engrossed in it. Or is is there a casual come-and-go relationship with? See, the point of seeing the Word of Christ dwell richly within us is to see the Word of Christ everywhere. It is to see it bear fruit everywhere. We want it to dwell in our hearts richly. And I think working on Paul's motif of the home, this dwelling place. We very passionately want the Word of God to come to bear in every realm of our lives, every realm of our hearts, every nook and cranny. Think of it this way. Let's use this picture of the home. The Word of Christ is to be in the foundation of our hearts. Meaning that the Word of Christ is everything upon which the Christian builds. Our entire life, our entire worldview, all of our conduct finds its foundation in the Word of God. Even our very work, all the work that we do is founded on the Word of Christ. We do everything in light of His revelation. Even the most seemingly casual thing. It's in the framing. The Word of Christ is in the very bones of the structure. It holds the house up. It keeps it from collapsing. It's why we have today building codes. We have building codes so the house doesn't end up being some kind of shack that can blow over when the first high wind comes from down from the hills and the word of Christ presents a strong frame strong bones so that the house never collapses. it's also in the flooring see this is how richly the word of Christ is to dwell within us it's even in the flooring we walk around on it we stand on it all the time we're always aware of its presence and we find our very footing in it it's even in the furniture think about where your heart finds rest where else does the heart find rest but in the riches of the word of Christ? It's where you can lay your head. It's where you can rest your weary soul. It's in the very furniture. It's in the photos even. Some of you, most of you may have, you know, when your house, is, when you think of your house becoming a home, wow, there's pictures on the wall. What are photos for? Why do we put up particular photographs in our house? Well, they are typically memories of significant things that have happened in our life that we Look at and we say, wow, this is a reminder of, of joyful times or a joyful season in life. And we want to remember those things. We want to call them to mind often. And so in that, with that same mindset, we call to mind often the word of Christ. Very significant reason we have those types of things hanging in. Do we have pictures of war? You know, <laughs> do we have, do any of you have a photo of framed up on your wall where you were at a funeral? No, probably not. Put them there to remind us of what God has done for us and all the gifts that He gives us. This, I think, illustration demonstrates the obvious. That what we desire is that wherever we look, especially in the life of the church, but in every area of life, the Word of Christ would radiate. It would dominate. It would be obvious that we treasure it above the wisdom of man. That it completely displaces any earthly wisdom. That is what it is to dwell for it to dwell richly within you, that it makes a home out of your heart. And I would put this against this proclivity to treat Christ almost like he's a hobo. We treat the word of Christ like it's sort of like, like he's a tenant or something. Not, not, not that he is master of the domain of your heart, but rather that he's sort of just a renter. He comes and goes as he pleases. You don't really check on him at all. Oh, you're here! <laughs> I think we do ourselves a lot of spiritual harm by treating the Word of Christ so casually, just as an occasional visitor. That simply is not what it means to dwell richly. Going back to what we've already mentioned, I think when you find a person caught in grievous error, in grievous sin, that just completely shackles them, just takes the feet right out from the carpet right out from under their feet, where do we find the Word of God? think we find it either absent or missing, kind of wondering where it is. But we especially find it being treated casually. And I would say this, friends, if you treat the Word of God casually, you will eventually come to treat it with contempt. You'll come to hate it. But understanding that the Word of Christ is to dwell in our hearts richly is to understand the God who gives it to us abundantly. When you treat the Word of Christ casually, you're treating God as if He's a miser. You're treating God as if He is stingy rather than seeing the riches of His truth that He gives to all of His people. So we are called to grasp that, to anchor our very hope in it, in the Word of Christ with all of its authority, with all of its clarity and encouragement and beauty. So the question becomes, how do we let the Word of Christ dwell richly within us? And I think the answer wouldn't surprise you. I think Scripture itself tells us. First of all, you've got to spend time with it. For there to be richness in any relationship, you spend time with it. You invest in it. Imagine, I mean, imagine this scenario. You got your house. You know, you're, you think you're happily married. And then maybe, you know, you're, you're, think of it this way, guys. Say, you know, your husband, your wife is at home and you, and you call her. If you haven't heard from her. You kind of been working late and you're like, Hey, babe, I just want you to know I'm going to be out late tonight. I've got extended office hours. And instead of, of your wife responding, well, I, I miss you. I'd really like you to come home. When are you going to come back? Instead, she says, yeah, whatever. That's, that's great. You, you know, we're, we're, we're good here. Stay out later. No, no phone call. You call her, hey, you know, uh, I'm going to be out a little later. Sure, that's fine. She's never calling you, asking you where you are. What you up to? Please come home. We kind of do that to the word of Christ. We, t- we, t- we, treat, we treat Jesus that way. And to do that is to treat him with contempt why that familiar phrase comes up that if jesus is not lord of all he's not lord at all to give him any any place in your life that is secondary is to completely ignore his absolute domination and lordship and claim over your life so let the word of christ dwell in you richly that's our passion so let's look at this text again look at verse 16 he says let the word of christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So here is yet another of Paul's one another's. So we want to consider the place of the word of Christ in a very specific context. We can talk about its place in your life, but specifically where Paul connects this is in our corporate worship. We can't admonish and teach one another if we're not here. I love how these verses seem to dispel this myth of the privatized Christian life, right? Me, my Bible, and Jesus. But here we have this transition point into the very purpose of the Christian life. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. And the way that this is expressed is through corporate worship in song. Now, when you were thinking, hopefully you were thinking about coming to church today. I doubt that many of you were thinking that one of the main reasons you were to show up and gather with the body of Christ this morning was for the purpose of teaching. We typically think of teaching within the confines of Sunday school or preaching verse by verse through the Word of God. I bet you didn't think, oh, I'm going to go teach today. And yet every Christian is called to come here and teach. That should That's one of our great joys and anticipation. You want to teach? Well, come here and sing, because that's its purpose. That is what the Word of Christ lends it to, so you can see the connection there. There's going to be an interaction with these two. Your pre- the, the preaching in any church is going to reflect the kind of songs it sings, and vice versa. The kind of songs we sing are going to be a reflection of how the Word of God is handled and regarded in any church. Now, there may be some inconsistencies, but typically, they are going to be reflections of one another. If there is depth and clarity in teaching, there is going to be depth and clarity in singing. If there is shallowness in preaching, there is going to be typically shallowness in our singing. But we're all here to teach. So I hope that prevails upon your heart this morning and you look at the Lord's Day in a new way. That you gird the loins of your mind ready to show up and teach one another. It's very simple. Very simple language here. Teaching simply means to teach, to instruct, to instruct in the truth. To communicate with one another, life transform, the life transforming word of Christ. He also says, admonish. Well, what's admonish? How, How are teaching and admonishing different? Admonishing is how we instruct in the teaching. It is to demonstrate between right and wrong, between truth and error. It can even point to warning and rebuking. I know we're supposed to be nice up here, but yes, we are called to warn and rebuke one another, even in our singing. That we are to make one another aware of that which is error and that which is truth. Let's give a simple example even from the Psalms. In Psalm 115, verse 1, we read this. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. So there is a negative. Lord, let this not be the case. Church, let this not be characteristic of you. But let this be the case to God's name. Be the glory. So there is correction. That is admonishment. And then there is more. Here is what you are to do to give glory to the name of God. We even do so in modern singing. A song here that we sing occasionally that's really great. It's called Grace by City of Light. And they say this Your grace that leads the sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by merit. So you see the admonishment there. We are given a clear picture of the blessings of God, that of being brought from death to life. There is always a temptation, even for the believer in the flesh, to claim the blessings of God by work and merit, rather than solely by the grace and goodness of God. So there is admonishment. There is distinction there. And I mean, that's the greatest truth we can remind ourselves. That all the blessings that we enjoy from the Gospel of Jesus Christ come to us by grace. That's what makes it good news. Not by anything we can do. not Not by anything that we can earn or deserve. By blood, not by merit. So I would point to that as an example of applying this Scripture. And the substance is rich. It admonishes. It makes clear the Gospel and the Word of Christ. That is teaching and admonishing one another in the Word of Christ in our worship. Now, we can shake our heads and say, oh yeah, that's great, amen. But for much of the church, this should come as a very unsettling thing. That worship in song is a corporate event where our primary duty and pleasure is to teach one another as a means of exalting the Lord Jesus. That's why we gather together. Singing and teaching and admonishing is a means of exalting the Lord Jesus. Our very purpose. And so for some, this is, a, this is very difficult to receive. And I hate to break it to you. Worshiping in song is not about your quiet time with Jesus. Worshiping in song is not about your personal escaping your personal trials in life. It's not about even getting a good dose of the feels or getting high on Jesus. And most of all, it is not about Daddy God coming in here and slaying you with His reckless love. It's not about you. And yet, we try to make it be that very thing. And it dawned on me, even as I was going over this passage this morning, that we don't typically think of singing to the Lord, singing in church, as a way in which we are massively abdicating our role in raising our kids. You ever think about that? Sometimes we say, well, what are we exposing our kids to? We don't often think about how we worship in song, about the very content and substance and lyrics of the songs we sing. What are they communicating about God? What are they telling you about Jesus? What are they telling you about the gospel? What are they telling you about the kingdom of God? Is the whole counsel of God being preached or are we stuck on sunshine mountain and Jesus loves me, this I know? It's a very real question. And I think we're kind of, in many ways, we're hanging our kids out to dry because we're just keeping it shallow. In some sense, we are presenting consistently that Jesus is either your boyfriend or even worse, your girlfriend. And He's here when you need Him. Rather than being King of kings and Lord of lords who has the power of life and death over you and could slay you in one second. We forget the Lord Jesus in our worship because we forget the Word of Jesus in our worship. And so, if you sing songs about Jesus being your boyfriend or girlfriend, You are going to teach your kids that that is what Jesus is like. And what do we do with a boyfriend or girlfriend who fails to meet our expectations? We dump them. So Jesus just ends up being another item in the trash bin of failed relationships. I don't know how the church can stand such blasphemous behavior from it. And yet this is what we're doing. So think of that especially in the context of how we're discipling one another, especially our children. They're, they're taking all of this in. So why should worship and song be the exception, especially when it's a huge part of teaching? We understand that. Music is a huge part of life. Right now, the live music business, live music business is worth $31 billion. Music is very important. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon. You go walk around, even in Colorado Springs, you see you see families... You know maybe they're 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 walking around downtown or in the park, guarantee you, one of them is going to be walking with their family trailing behind with their shoulders slumped over and they have their 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 newest earbuds in, just drowning it out. They're not they're not a part of anything their family's doing. They just need their music, man. That's the message to them. That is their gospel. And so all the more we have to communicate to those entrusted to our spiritual care that Teaching is a part of our worship in song. And that the message of the word of Christ is as clear and powerful as possible. It's not meant to escape, it's not meant to use to escape anywhere. It's meant to engage us with one another. That is why we worship with the lights on and there's no smoke machine. There's no weird, you know, glory glitter coming out of the the ductwork. Why? Because the glory is with us. We understand that but it is not meant to drown out everything else around us. We are meant to look each other in the eye and teach one another the Word of Christ so that it can do its job by dwelling richly within us and completely transforming our lives. That's what it's supposed to do. And so moving on here, he says this, admonishing and teaching one another with all wisdom, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness, in your hearts to God. So this Word of Christ dominates the way we think. It dominates our teaching. It dominates our worship. And we do it in a particular fashion. Look at this. He says, with all wisdom. So in, all, in every sense, our substance of worship is drawn from wisdom that is found in Christ. Which means that we are bringing all of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, to bear in our worship. When we are teaching one another, we are showing one another... How to put the knowledge of God's word to use so that we can be wise. And what, it, what is it to be wise? It is simple. Wisdom is this. It's looking at reality in a way that enables us to pursue what is good in life. You can't, what is, what is best in life? It is God himself. It is to know Christ. It is to identify with Christ. And we cannot do that without the word of Christ. So we must teach with all wisdom. So that means, that means it's very important for today. That means in no part of our corporate worship do we ever put wisdom aside or treat it as secondary and import so-called human wisdom, which just ends up making us sing like fools. No, wisdom is to be present in the very thread, in the very substance and content of our singing together. That's why we don't throw the word of Christ around in our singing as if it's cheap or meaningless or secondary, but we demonstrate as we teach and sing to one another How it is practical unto sanctification and godliness. And we unite our hearts and purpose around that. See, it is wisdom that connects truth together. That's why why we want our singing even to reflect the wisdom of God. We We don't want to stand here and sing random isolated truths about God. It is wisdom that connects those truths together so that we have a greater and clear and whole picture of who Jesus is and what He and what He demands for, for our lives. And how His grace makes that all possible. And it seems that we can do this in a variety of ways, and there's lots of, there's lots of commentary on what psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are. Some think that that this is strictly talking about singing the psalms, and that hymns and spiritual songs are one of the varieties of, of, of psalms. Plenty of uh, scholarly work has been done on this. But I think the common denominator is very clear, is that the Word of Christ is communicated clearly in our singing and not just our preaching. So Psalms is clear. Song from the Old Testament book of Psalms. If if any of you have visited a Presbyterian church, some Presbyterian, many Presbyterian churches use what's called the Psalter. And it's basically the Psalms put in usually a poetic or rhyming form. um, And then you sing those We sing those psalms. Some churches have what's called exclusive psalmody, that we only sing the psalms and nothing else. Then you have hymns. Again, doing my research here, it seems like hymns can be, yes, psalms, but also what we would call a a festive song of praise. You know, we talk about hymns. We sing them in here all the time. Whether ancient or modern, hymns are typically viewed as songs where we sing praise to God. After all, that's the purpose of worship. We praise the Lord and exalt His name, and teach one another all but that that contains. It is thought that even in the book of Colossians, if you want to mark this in your Bibles, starting in chapter 1, verses 15 through verse 20, it is thought that that is a hymn. That is a hymn proclaiming Christ's universal lordship, creative and reconciling work. So hymns are very ancient, sung at very early times within church history. Again, it seems to be a, an overlap between uh, the practice of worship in the Old Testament synagogues and then, of course, the New Covenant comes and then Christians worship and continue singing hymns reflecting on the Word of Christ. So then, of course, we have, I think, probably the, most, the more difficult uh, term here. He says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we say, okay, well, what are these spiritual songs? It's a little complicated here. It is thought... And propose that spiritual songs are songs of personal testimony regarding what Christ has done. So you kind of see the variety there. You have Psalms, you have sing, you know, songs of praise where we're just ascribing to God who he is and his character and his attributes. But then, of course, you have spiritual songs which reflect the heart's disposition toward who God is and what he has done. Yes, it is totally appropriate for us to sing together what God has done for us, what he has done in us, every all of his redemptive work that benefits us. If you want to turn very quickly to Revelation chapter 5, this, there's, an ex, there's a good example of this. In Revelation 5, verse 9, and I think this is a good reason that, it's a good ground that we should also write new songs. So this is a song that hasn't always been around. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So what God has done for man and his purposes for man, you go down again in verse thirteen to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion for ever and ever. Testimonies of who Christ is and what He has done, and that should be that should be thank. We should be thankful. And on that note, you know, Paul tells us to be thankful, and then he says, "Sing with thankfulness in your heart." And that's one of the things that I, that, that continues to kind of bother me about corporate worship. Sometimes, just don't don't miss the intent here. Sometimes we're so Baptist in our worship, we're so dispassionate. I mean, we have to admit, guys, that sometimes our worship is kind of lame. There's no passion. There's no excitement. There's no anticipation for what God has done. Think about, are are our hearts really thankful when we're constantly getting self-conscious about whether or not we're singing too loud, whether or not we're clapping our hands? I mean, even even the psalmist says, clap your hands, all you people, all y'all, clap your hands, those of you from the South. Clap your hands. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. Man, sometimes we sing together and we sound like a bunch of losers. <laughs> we do. There's no joy. There's no passion. It's just heartless repetition. And we are we are warned to avoid doing that very thing. I mean, Israel, Judah, was strongly censured by the Lord because of that. In Isaiah 29, 13-14, we read this. Then the Lord said, because these this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service. See, it's more than just repetition. But they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Really? That's your reverence? That's your fear of God? The fact that you've memorized certain things and yet it has no bearing on your affections for God? I mean, what the heck is going on here with our worship? That it's become so dispassionate. Like we're not triumphant at all. Just sitting here. Hope I abide. Hope I persevere. Just sitting here, surviving. Lord, please come. Maranatha, deliver me from this planet that's going to die. That's not the song of a triumph, friends. I'm going to be frank here. That is the song of a loser. That is the song of a person that does not know the victory that he has in the Lord Jesus. And I say right here and now, we should repent from that mindset. And when we sing, we lift our voices and sing joyfully. And if we're looking at other people, we're looking at them like, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you lifting your voice in triumph? Because Christ, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, has won. Man, we've got to start believing that. Until you start believing that, the Word of Christ has no place in your life. True worship starts by... Knowing God who, knowing who God is and treasuring the scriptures. Because only a thankful heart is able to express truly and triumphantly what God has done. To sing praise to God for His grace. To treasure His truth. And furthermore, even, you know, we think of the word gratitude. A thankful Christian exults in the debt that he continues to accrue in God and in His grace. See, as believers, we should desire more. We should always want more of the word of Christ, more of God's presence in our lives, more influence and strength, more truth. And in our hearts so often fall flat on their face when it comes to. Consider the psalm, Psalm 116, 12 through 13. It's one of my favorite psalms because it clears us from the debtor's ethic. Like, oh, what can I do, Lord, to make it up to you? Repent from that thought. Here we go. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits toward me? Oh boy, how can I give back to God? You ever come to church with that mindset? How can I give back to God? He says this, I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. So what does this look like? It's the person who says, Lord, I praise You for all that You've done for me and all that You've given for me. I want more of that. Lift the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. That is the expression of a thankful heart. That is the expression of a heart in which the Word of Christ dwells richly. That is the heart that says, God has given me everything I need in abundance. Every good and perfect gift. So finally, in verse 17, He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And often, uh, these types of words are used to close out a particular thought of the Apostle that is writing it. So, of course, he says, in everything. So that, of course, means without qualification. Right? We desire Christ to be all in all, right? He is first place in everything, just as Paul says earlier in this letter. We want Christ to have first place in everything. So, in everything, in word or in deed or whatever, in the very intention of your heart, do all in the name of the Lord. Jesus. So one, for one, that keeps us from compartmentalizing worship to Sunday morning. That keeps us from saying that this is holy territory and every place outside of it, well, you know, it's something else. But Paul reminds us here that it's all for him and it's all in his name. And so Paul is able to encapsulate all the instruction he's given us starting from verse 12, whether it's our position, whether it's our pursuit, passion, purpose, and here's where the purpose really comes to bear, is that we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Jeremy reminded uh, us of that in Sunday school this morning. The very basis of the Christian ethic and morality, the very basis of our entire life in Christ, is to love God with all heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. We do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means that all we do as followers of Christ, we do in His name. We act as His representatives. We act as His ambassadors. Right, We are ambassadors of the King. See, this means that everything we do is holy. Everything we do is to be a sacred activity because it's all in His name and for Him. That is this great purpose. We do all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus so that His name is made known. See, we work for Him. I think one writer distills this well. He writes that the name of Christ hallows and ennobles all work. Nothing can be so small but this will make it great. Nor so monotonous and tame, but this will make it beautiful and fresh. What a great statement. Because the enemy always wants to make worship about anything other than Christ. Wants to make everything we do in life. Wants to make compassion, love, forgiveness, humility, kindness. Wants to make even that separate from Christ. But we do all of those things so that the name of the Lord Jesus is made known. So that it is made beautiful and fresh. When we do things in the name of the Lord Jesus, it, be, it keeps it from becoming cold and stale and lifeless. See, the name of Christ breathes purpose life and life into everything that we do. And wouldn't we want it that way as believers? Wouldn't we want it that way as a church? And so all that Paul has covered here, we do for that singular purpose. That Christ would be made known so that we can give thanks. There it is, giving thanks. See, we want our heart that our heart is in it. And all that we do, including our worship, that our heart, that our heart is expressed through our words of praise. So we're not just repeating words on a screen. So we're not just going through the motions. Through him to God the Father. And of course, I think that simply means that when we render this service unto God the Father, that we do it even on the merits of Christ. That we live life, even our very thanks to God, all through Christ and on the solid rock of what he has done. And so in all of this, friends, I hope this is is your passion. I mean, I think this is a wonderful day to reflect on that. We want this to be our passion. We want worship and serving one another to be our constant passion and pursuit. To love the work that, that Jesus Himself is accomplishing through us so that His kingdom comes and that His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So in light of that, we continue to submit our hearts to the Word of Christ knowing that it will not only transform us as it does its work, but all of creation as we know it. So let it be written, so let it be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You again for our time in Your Word. Thank You for this precious text that tells us how You desire to be And that You are even honored when we come together and we teach. We are able to teach one another in a variety of ways. Father, also it's a reminder that we can leave our own insight and sometimes even our own creativity at the door and worship You. Worship You in spirit and in truth. Worshiping You according to the truth of who You are. That we don't need to to sugarcoat anything. We don't have to obfuscate anything. But that our only inclination, God, would be to make You known. To make the Word of Your Son known to one another. Lord, I I do pray that if there is repentance in our own body that needs to take place regarding our view of, of worship, that You would grant it. That we can once again worship You with Whole, with our whole heart, passionately, joyously, triumphantly, knowing that come what may, even in, even in this life, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, things that are from a human point of view have a particular hopelessness attached to them that we know that nothing, nothing of that sort can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That even in itself is worthy to be sung about. God, as we head into more singing, May your word be cherished. May your son be honored and exalted. Breathe new life into this congregation and help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.